turn to Jeremiah 16 this evening. And after this evening, we are going to take a little bit of a break from Jeremiah, which was not the original plan, but if you've been around Wednesday nights for even a little bit, you know what happens when we make plans. God laughs. Looking at the calendar, Ann and I are on vacation next week. Alan Dodson will be making a triumphant return to the pulpit. The week after that is the week of Thanksgiving and the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. It seems that many people are going in many directions. We will be spending an evening in prayer. And then a week after that, well, two weeks after that, we're into December already. On December 6th, Wednesday the 6th, the 10th Hour Project is going to be coming through. Ethan and uh, his, his fellow travelers are going to be coming through on their way back from Florida, I think it is. Um, so we're going to give them a Wednesday night. The following week, Rob announced last weekend on Sunday, is our Hope and Future outreach. So that'll preempt Wednesday. So that really just leaves the 29th with nothing planned for it. It seems odd to take two weeks away from Jeremiah, one week back, and then two weeks away or, or three weeks because then we're already to the week of Christmas. So it just it seems, it seems more appropriate to just hit pause on Jeremiah. I don't know what we'll do the 29th, to be honest. That's the one week I don't have a plan for. Um, haven't heard from the Lord about that. Maybe, maybe we take a look at what's going on in Israel, um, but I need, to, I need to sit with God on that one. So anyway, long story less long, Wednesdays are going to continue, um, but not in Jeremiah, probably until 2024. And chapter 16 ends up being a pretty good place to hit pause because it concludes the section that we've been in. Um, I thought about stretching to chapter 17 tonight, but 17 is kind of an odd man out. Chapter 17, we've got no idea where it fits. It's, it's sort of stuck in where it is arbitrarily so far as we can tell. But there's, a, there's, there's enough diverse content there that it'll actually give us a good on-ramp when we start back up in a few weeks. So tonight, chapter 16. And if you're joining us in progress... God, over the last chapters, has been expressing in no uncertain terms through Jeremiah to Judah, hey, Judah, you're in for a rough ride. White water coming up. Tough times ahead. Why? Because Judah has ignored God, ignored the prophets of God, continued to chase after idols that aren't God. And God has promised that he won't destroy Judah utterly and completely. He won't wipe out the nation. He won't obliterate it entirely. But he's not making any promises short of that. He's not going to destroy Judah utterly. He still has promises to keep to them and promises to keep through them. Messiah, conspicuously among them. But he's not going to promise to stop very much short of destroying them utterly. Chapter 14, he said, some of you are going to starve. Some of you are going to fall in battle. Those that survive will be carried off into exile. Tough times ahead. 
So chapter 16, God says to Jeremiah, you've told people that. Your words have spoken that on my behalf. Now I want you to picture that to the people of Judah. I want you to prophesy about what's coming, not just with your words, but with your actions, with your lifestyle. The word of the Lord came to me, verse 1, saying, You shall not take a wife, nor shall you have sons or daughters in this place. For thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters who are born in this place, Judah in, in the times that are to come, and concerning their mothers who bore them and their fathers who begot them in this land, they shall die gruesome deaths. They shall not be lamented, nor shall they be buried, but they shall be like refuse on the face of the earth. They shall be consumed by the sword and by famine, and their corpses shall be meat for the birds of heaven and for the beasts of the earth. You don't see that cross-stitched into a pillow. <laughs> I mean, that's grim, right? I mean, it starts off and it sounds like what God had Hosea speak. The, you know, God saying to Hosea, hey, here's your wife. By the way, it's not going to be a great marriage. Because Hosea's relationship was to be a picture of God's relationship with Israel, with the northern kingdom Israel. But Jeremiah, it's even further. To Jeremiah, God says no marriage because of what's about to go down between God and, and the people, his people Judah. Now, put this in context. In, in Jeremiah's time, really, in Jewish culture, in any time, that would be a hard word. That would be a difficult thing to lay on someone because marriage and family is huge in Jewish culture. Marriage obviously is the key to family and family, well, family is, is name and family is land and family is inheritance and family is community. To not marry, to not have children, that would be shameful, scandalous, some in the Talmud even would, would call it sinful. And that's the point, God says. I want you to demonstrate by how you're living that Judah's coming into a season where name and land and inheritance and all of those things, even the community that you have unto yourselves, aren't going to matter. Family isn't going to matter. Family isn't going to be an asset. It's going to be a liability. People are going to be dying, God says, so quickly. People are going to be dying in such great numbers, there won't be time to mourn them all. There won't be time to bury them all. Their corpses will just sit out like yesterday's garbage to be consumed by scavengers. And, and, and if you know anything about Jewish culture, that in and of itself, to, be, to leave a corpse unburied, that was tantamount to a curse. And so that, too, adds to the picture, to the visual that God is trying to create of the impending judgment. Verse 5, God says to Jeremiah, don't stop there, by the way. I want you to take that picture of, of unburied corpses, of unmourned dead. I want you to live that out even before it happens. Live that out as well. For thus says the Lord God, verse 5, do not enter the house of mourning nor go to lament or bemoan them. For I've taken away my peace from this people, says the Lord. Loving kindness and mercies, they're gone too. 
Both the great and the small shall die in this land. They shall not be buried, neither shall men lament for them, cut themselves, nor make themselves bald for them. Nor shall men break bread in mourning for them to comfort them for the dead, nor shall men give them the cup of consolation to drink for their father or their mother. Even now, God says to Jeremiah, even before the judgment begins in earnest and the bodies start falling, I want you to live out a picture of what's coming. Do not participate in any of the usual customs or rituals surrounding death and mourning. Customs which, again, the Jewish people identify deeply with even today. No one mourns like observant Jews mourn. They, they have community, they have, they have ritual, they, 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 they have days and days of, of, of things structured around the death of a loved one. And, and, and it's a picture of, of their solidarity, it's a picture of their endurance through all of the things that, that they've survived as a people. But God says, no, Jeremiah, I don't want you to, I don't want you to have any part of that. There'll be none of that. I'm taking away, God says, my peace. I'm removing my loving kindness. I'm withholding my mercy. And I want your lifestyle, even now, to start picturing that. Because the time's going to come where the sheer number of people dying will prevent any kind of the mourning that, that you're associated with. Live that now. People won't be able to bring home to the people who, who lost loved ones. No one is going to be bringing wine to console those who are grieving. You start now, Jeremiah. The days are coming. You live it now. Show people with your life. Give them a preview of what it's going to be like. By the way, there's a bit of irony in verse 6. The reference to cutting oneself in grief. That was specifically forbidden under Levitical law. Cutting your hair, okay. That 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 was you know sackcloth and ashes were were tearing one's clothes. You know we're used to seeing that. Cutting oneself, that's more obscure. It's more obscure because it was forbidden. Leviticus nineteen twenty eight, Leviticus twenty one five. If you want to track it down, but even so, it was common among the Jewish people. To, to cut oneself in, 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 in sorrow and in depression. Which, here's the, the irony, is that's part of why God is judging them. Their casual, ongoing disregard of his word. Viewing his, his word as, as, as suggestion, not instruction or commandment. God says, okay, you didn't want to keep my word. When I judge you, you won't be able to. Continuing in verse 8, God's not done laying out parameters for Jeremiah. He's not, he's not done with his plans to make Jeremiah a living, interactive sort of exhibit of what judgment's going to be like. Verse 8, also you shall not go into the house of feasting to sit with them to eat or drink. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will cause to cease from this place before your eyes and in your days the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. Hey, Jer, no partying, no feasting, no celebrating, no rejoicing, no weddings. Why? All of the same reasons 
the time has come where coming where there's going to be no joy or celebration to be found anywhere in the land. By the way, Jeremiah, it's coming soon. It's going to happen in your day. You're not going to be like Josiah who gets to die before the bad stuff happens. You're going to see it. And I want you to start showing people what it's going to be like now. Now, God knows that as Jeremiah obeys him, as Jeremiah carries out his instruction, doesn't go to weddings, doesn't go to funerals, doesn't have a family, people are going to notice his behavior because it's way outside the norms of, of Jewish society, Jewish culture. He knows people are going to notice. He knows people are going to ask. In fact, he's counting on it. He says, verse 10, when they ask, because they will, here's what I want you to tell them. It shall be when you show this people all these words, when you live out the words that I'm speaking to you, and they say to you, why has the Lord pronounced all of this great disaster against us? Jeremiah, we get what you're picturing. We get that it's judgment, but why is the Lord mad? What is our iniquity? What is our sin that we've committed against the Lord our God? Then you shall say to them, Because your fathers have forsaken me, says the Lord. They've walked after other gods. <coughs> excuse me. They've walked after other gods and have served them and worshipped them and have forsaken me and not kept my law. And you've done worse than your fathers. For behold, each one fathers, fo follows the dictates of his own evil heart so that no one listens to me. Therefore, you're asking me why? That's why. Therefore, for that reason, I will cast you out of the land into a land that you do not know, neither you nor your fathers. And there you shall serve other gods day and night where I will not show you favor. It's interesting because even in pronouncing judgment, just a few verses after God says, I'm removing my mercy, we see mercy. We see the patience, the long-suffering of God in what he just said. The people are saying, what, what is their sin? What is so awful? What did, what, what did we do to, to deserve the judgment that you're describing? The fact that they're asking the question, the fact that they have to ask, shows just how far they've gone. That they don't even see their own iniquity, that they have to ask God. That just proves, the fact that they have to ask the question proves that they're deserving of judgment. But, but God still explains it. I think if, they, if, if, I think if it were me, I would say, if you don't know, then I can't explain it. If you have to ask the question, I don't think you'll understand the answer. Let's just end this now. Boom. Let's just, just, let's just cut to the chase and wipe you out. But it, God is God, and he patiently answers. You've turned away from me. You've disobeyed my laws. You've pursued idols. You've ignored the prophets. Your fathers did that. But instead of learning from their mistake, you added to their mistake. It's important to, 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 to not hear what God's not saying. He's not saying that he's punishing them for the sins of their fathers. He's saying, no, the sins of your fathers paved the way for your sin. You took what they did and you, you, you watched their rebellion and their depravity. You studied it and you improved upon it. You became more depraved, more evil, more wicked. To the point where now I've got to judge you for it, God says. I've got no choice. Those who don't die will be taken into captivity. The, the, the verb there is, is to hurl out of the land. 
It's the same verb used for, for Saul chucking a spear at David. He hurled a spear. It's the, it's the same verb for when the sailors hurled Jonah over the side of the boat because they figured out he was the problem. I'm going to expel you from the land into a strange land that you haven't heard of yet, but it's a land where you're going to get to worship all of the foreign gods you want because I'm going to take you to the homeland, to the origin place of all of those strange gods. And you can worship them day and night to your heart's content, except here's the thing, you're not going to enjoy it. Now, verse 14, the tone changes. Verse 14, God says, but that won't be the end of the story. Therefore, verse 14, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that it shall no more be said, the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, but instead people will say the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north, Babylon, and from all of the lands where he had driven them. For I will bring them back into their land, which I gave to their fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Even in judgment, God remembers mercy, right? Habakkuk 3.2. And here God pauses to reiterate that, to, to emphasize that. He's saying, look, the history of Israel up to this point, Exodus is pretty much the climax. And we see that, don't we? Reading Psalms, when, when, when Israel wants to proclaim God's faithfulness, God's power, God's mercy, they always go back to the Exodus. You are God who brought us out of the land of Egypt. That's the high point. And God says, yeah, but there's going to be a higher high point. I'm going to do something bigger, something better that's going to eclipse the Exodus. I'm going to restore you to the land. I'm going to remove you, and then I'm going to restore you. Now, a careful reading of verse 15, we get to have a little fun on a Wednesday night, gives us a glimpse, gives us a hint that there's a long-term fulfillment to what God just said, as well as a short-term fulfillment. We haven't talked about this a lot so far in Jeremiah. But we remember oftentimes in prophecy, we see short-term prophecy and long-term prophecy side by side. Sometimes the same prophecy has both short-term and long-term implications. Short-term having to do with the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem, the exile, and the subsequent return to the land, foreshadowing a long-term fulfillment where Jerusalem is once again under siege by Neo-Babylonians under the, the rule, uh, under the command of Antichrist, only to be delivered by Jesus. And on the heels of that, Israel is returned to the land, and believing Gentiles flock to the land. Where do you get that from verse 15, Patrick? Look at it again. The Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands he had driven them. All the lands suggests a scope that's bigger than just Babylon. Yes, I'm going to bring you back from the exile in Babylon, but all of the land suggests a return from the diaspora that began in 70 AD. 
not the restoration of Israel as a political nation, but the return of God's people, Israel, that happens at the end of the tribulation, that happens with the return of Christ. Patrick, can you anchor that in anything that Jesus says? I can. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, Matthew 24, 29, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he'll send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So I think that verse 15, we've got a dual fulfillment. Short term, the return from the Babylonian exile. Long term, Jesus setting up his kingdom. But that's down the road. And even the return from Babylon is down the road because the invasion and the exile haven't happened yet. So after interjecting this ray of sunshine that the judgment won't be permanent or complete, God returns to the point that he's making. It won't be permanent, it won't be complete, but it will be really, really grim. Verse 16, Behold, I'll send for many fishermen, says the Lord, and they shall fish them. And afterward, I'll send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and from every hill and out of the holes of the rocks. For my eyes are on all of their ways. They're not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity hidden from my eyes. And first I'll repay double for their iniquity and their sin, because they've defiled my land and have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable and abominable idols. You won't escape, God is declaring. You might not think that anybody sees what you're doing, I see what you're doing. And I'm going to search you out wherever you are to enforce my judgment upon you. And he uses two images to convey that idea. The, the idea of fishermen gathering fish by great numbers in nets, like the Babylonians are going to gather up the survivors and carry them off. If you, if you want to take that, that metaphor even further, what do fishermen do? They take fish out of their natural habitat and they carry them into an unnatural place, which is what the Babylonian army will do. They'll scoop up the people from Judah and carry them into a, a land not their own. And then the second picture, hunters stalking prey pursuing them even into their dens, even into their holes, even into the, to the homes and hiding places of the Jewish people. And there are several commentators who note that this was a known tactic of the Babylonian armies. They would stand shoulder to shoulder and march through a village, march through a town, march across an island. Like if you know, somebody's ever lost an earring or lost a, a jewel out of a ring or a contact lens. Okay, everybody go shoulder to shoulder and let's just walk really slow and look really carefully. That's how the Babylonian army would search out anyone hiding from them. Point being, verse 18, God says, you can't hide from me. You can't hide from my judgment. You can't hide from those that I'm going to use as instruments of my judgment. Now, because it's Wednesday night and we like to have fun, since we had at least a hint of a long-term fulfillment in verse 15, since we had at least the suggestion that maybe this isn't just referring to the Babylonian captivity, but maybe also the tribulation, could verse 16 to 18 possibly have a long-term reference as well? My answer is maybe. Even verging on quite possibly. Because the second half of the tribulation will see 
those under Antichrist, rooting out the Jewish people, especially believing Jews. Now, 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 some Messianic commentators go even further with this, and they want to differentiate. Well, the fishers are the, the direct persecution of Antichrist's troops, and the hunters are the other nations that will join along to try to ingratiate themselves to Antichrist. I don't know if I buy that. And, and, and you're saying to yourself, okay, there's speculative, there's really speculative, and there's even Patrick's as it's speculative. And, and that's fair. But I'm intrigued by verse 18. I am. Because, because, because look again, I will first repay double for their iniquity and their sin because they've defiled my land and filled my inheritance with the carcasses and, and so forth. Where have we heard that before? The answer is not too long ago, we read something very similar in Isaiah 40, verse 2, where God says, Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sin. And that's undeniably a long-term prophecy. Israel's iniquity being pardoned, that's yet future. That's on the other side of, of Jesus' return. But, but what did Isaiah just say happens first? She's received double for all her sin. That's what we just read in Jeremiah, right? And, and, and when we were in, in Isaiah 40, we tracked that down to Exodus 4.22, where, where we read that Israel is God's firstborn, and we remember that it was Jewish custom that the firstborn received double blessing, but also was subject to double judgment. And so in the, in the tribulation, the whole world is going to suffer, but Israel is going to suffer more. Why? God's firstborn. God's chosen people. Now, if you want to argue, if you want to push back on me, you can say, Patrick, I think that's a stretch. Why is that a stretch? Because it sounds like Jeremiah is talking about idolatry. And future Israel isn't guilty of idolatry, are they? I mean, that was the whole point of the Babylonian exile. They left their idols behind in Babylon. God said, I'm going to send you into the land where all of those idols came from. You can worship them to your heart's content. You can worship them until you're, you're sick of them. You know, like when your dad made you smoke the whole pack of cigarettes and you never wanted to smoke a cigarette again. Same kind of thing. So, so Israel leaves their idols in Babylon. We can't be talking about future Israel, can we? I think maybe we can. Keep a finger in Jeremiah if, if you want. Flip over to Zechariah 13. Because Zechariah 13 is unquestionably an end times prophecy. In Zechariah 13, we read, In that day... A fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and uncleanness. Okay, right there we know that we're, we're not talking about return from Babylon, Babylonian captivity. It shall be in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I'll cut off the names of the idols from the land, and they'll no longer be remembered. I'll also call to the prophets and the unclean spirit to depart from the land. It shall come to pass, if anyone still prophesies, that his father and mother who begot him will say to him, You shall not live because you've spoken lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who begot him shall thrust him through when he prophesies. 
And it shall be in that day that every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. They will not wear a robe of coarse hair to deceive, but he'll say, I'm no prophet, I'm a farmer. For a man taught me to keep cattle for my youth. They'll deny that they were ever prophets. And one will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? And he'll answer, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. That's unquestionably messianic, right? That's unquestionably long-term. So why the reference to idolatry? I think it's because there will be many Jews during the tribulation who buy into first Antichrist's promises and make an idol out of peace. And then later there will be Jews who buy into the false prophet's religion and jump on board with, with the form of godliness that he offers. Point being, and it's not a major point, do I think that verses 16 to 18 back in Jeremiah have a dual fulfillment, both short-term and long-term? Maybe. I, I would say probably. If, 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 is it important you agree with me? It is not. Because it doesn't tell us anything that we don't already know. There's no unique insight here. There's no new information that we don't get anywhere else. It's just reminding us of, of things that we learn elsewhere. The only reason I'm leaning into it is because of what God says next. Verse 19 as we head for the finish line. O Lord, my strength and my fortress, my refuge in the day of affliction, the Gentiles shall come to you from the ends of the earth and say, surely our fathers have inherited lies, worthlessness and unprofitable things. Will a man make gods for himself which are not gods? Therefore, behold, I will this once cause them to know. I will cause them to know my hand and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. Short term, that reads like a dialogue between Jeremiah and God, a dialogue of the kind that we've seen a number of times in the last 16 chapters. Jeremiah confessing his nation's sin. These are worthless idols. They have no power. We are guilty. God saying, yeah, but that's all going to change. And, 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 then, and that's fine. Except we can't read this with our eyes open. We can't read this out loud and think that's all that's happening. Verse 19, O Lord, my strength and my fortress, my refuge in the day of affliction. Day of affliction, another name for tribulation, where God does what? Divinely shelters and preserves that believing remnant in Petra. What happens at the end of the tribulation? Jesus returns and defends that believing remnant under siege, and then does what? And, 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 and then marches to the Mount of Olives, where we read in the Olivet Discourse, where we read in Isaiah, the Gentiles shall come to you from the ends of the earth and confess their sin. Surely our fathers have inherited lies, worthlessness, and unprofitable things. And they'll ask rhetorically, will a man make gods for himself which are not gods? And their point is not anymore because our eyes have been opened to the true and living God. Therefore, behold, I will this once, one final time, cause them to know. 
I will cause them to know my hand and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. Those that don't believe, we read again and again in Psalms, God will strike with a rod of iron. When you have time, look at Isaiah 42 and see if it doesn't parallel what we just read. It's a fitting chapter to, to, to go out on, to, to hit pause on for a few weeks. And in a sense, there's nothing new in, in any of what we just read. What do we take away from this? Nothing that we don't already know. What does God think about idols? Hates them. Because he's jealous for his name. I'm the Lord your God, you'll have no other gods before me. We know that. That's familiar, that's well-traveled ground. And yet we do. Can't point a finger at Judah without three pointing back at us. Judah, with the idols. How did you not see? How did you not hear? How did you not understand? Patrick, with the idols. You teach this stuff. How do you not get it? What's an idol? An idol is something that's more important than all of the other things. An idol is something that we organize our life around, that we, that we make sacrifices for, that we prioritize, that we elevate. Are there things that, that we prioritize and elevate above God? There are. I don't think anyone in this room would deny that. People, hobbies. Somebody asked me a few weeks ago, are hobbies idols? They don't have to be. Nothing has to be an idol. But it's funny, almost anything can be. A relationship, a family, a job, a career. Ministry is the most insidious idol of all. A non-Jesus coping mechanism? Lots of idols in our lives. And useful as we read the, let's call it what it is, angry words of God. To, to remember what our idolatry is in the eyes of God who sent his son to save us. Does God forgive our idolatry? He does. Is he patient with us in our knuckleheaded ways? He is, or we wouldn't be standing here, sitting here, breathing here. But it's, 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 it's useful as, as we, as we you know, begin and end our time together praising God with our lips, offering him songs of, of adoration that we that we describe as worship God this is this is this is this is the the song of our heart this is this is what we want to express to you oh that our lives would not be double-tongued and that the words of our lips would correspond to to, to, to the to the words of our heart and the words of our actions. God says to Jeremiah, I want your actions to, to send a message. 
Our actions send a message. They send a message to the world, what we think about God. They send a message to, 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 to other believers in, in, our, in our community. You know, my laxness in an, in, a, in an area gives other people permission to be lax. And, and their, their lack of, of diligence in an area, well, they give other people in their sphere of influence permission to be less than diligent and so forth. Our actions speak to the world. Our actions speak to one another, but our actions speak to God. And it's useful to keep that in mind and to ask God to, to show us ourselves so that we can confess and be restored to, to fellowship with him. But more than that, so we can cry out and ask his spirit to, to meet us in our areas of weakness, our areas of indulgence, and, 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 and do his work of sanctification. He won't do it against our will. But when we say, God, this is an area that, that I know you want to work on. This is an area that I know is not in line with, with your heart. Oh, the power that raised Jesus from the grave becomes available as we diligently lay down our idols and worship him alone. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you are long-suffering. And Father, tonight we thank you for Israel. We thank you for Judah. We thank you for all of the words that you spoke to them and the example that, that you made them to be. Lord, our pride wants to judge. Our pride wants to, to look down. Lord, Israel's people, and we're people, we share the same sin nature. The difference is, is, is we've called upon your name. We've recognized our Messiah. We've been forgiven by your blood. But Lord, teach us to walk in the fullness of what that means. Teach us surrender. Teach us sanctification. Teach us to worship you with our lives.